0: six miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses.
1: Hit it. Hello, and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek.
2: And this is Anna.
1: And today, we bring to you the best movie ever made.
2: We're, in fact, on a mission from God to yes. bring you yes. <laughs> the best movie ever made. I mean, I know that that is what you truly believe, and that's... <laughs> Uh, that's totally fine. We each can have our own opinion. I do love this movie. The Blues but... Brothers
1: is one of my favorite movies. Yes. And yes. has been for a very long mm-hmm. time.
2: Like we were saying with our very special guest, you know, played played them as the last song out yeah. at our wedding reception. So this is a fun one. This is a fun one. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's get in because let's dive we, right in. we have a lot to talk about. And we had a great conversation with our special guest that we want to get to. So the Blues Brothers, 1980. So just it just, just got in it, there, yeah.
1: I swear to God, I would have changed the entire format of this <laughs> podcast to get this in.
2: 80s movie montage and a little bit of the 70s. Yeah,
1: <laughs> late 70s movie montage.
2: <laughs> and you know, a couple of the main players that we're going to talk about are individuals that we've discussed before, uh, namely Dan Aykroyd. Oh yeah. Who, you know, we went on at length uh, because of his involvement with Ghostbusters that we covered last season. but uh, let's let's go over it again because it's been a while. and not only is he obviously one of the two main stars in this film, but he was the primary writer, really, yeah, of Blues Brothers. So he has thirty four writing credits on IMDB. That being said, the overwhelming majority of them, have something to do with either the Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters because both of those films have kind of had lives of their own and gone on to, you know, other TV shows cartoons whatever so outside i love of- the
1: blues brothers cartoon it's
2: <laughs> great
1: animation I mean,
2: more more ghostbusters oh. than blues All brothers right. but you know he has writing credits on saturday night live that's probably where most people first became familiar with his work yeah uh like i just mentioned he wrote ghostbusters and also i don't know if he was like really so involved with ghostbusters too but because he had like created the characters that were part of Ghostbusters 2. He has that credit for it. Okay. Also writing credits for Spies Like Us, Dragnet, Coneheads, and like I mentioned, another Blues Brother credit for Blues Brothers 2000. So. Yeah. Yeah 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 we talk about that we talk about it's yeah we we talk about not talking about that (laughs) (laughs) with tommy joe yeah and then the other writer on this so like Aykroyd, i think it came up in our conversation with him that Aykroyd he really loves to write like books instead of scripts like both with ghostbusters and with blues brothers i mean hundreds of pages long scripts
1: well what what that's very true. He wrote hundreds of pages for for this movie, and I think at one point he had envisioned it being two movies. Yes, but that's correct. I I know that you'll go through the credits. There is one credit in particular that has me excited and hopeful because of how long he's he's like his vision, I guess, for for okay. lengthy scripts. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right.
2: Yeah. I'm curious to see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, so the other gentleman is John Landis, who actually was also the director on this film, and you know we. Talked about Landis very recently, like about a month ago when we did our episode on Trading Places Mm -hmm. because he was the director of that as well. So like won't go too far down the rabbit hole, but he does have a writing credit on this, which he did not for Trading Places. So like to bring up some of his other writing credits, American Werewolf in London, Twilight Zone the movie, which, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk about the whole thing around that in the Trading Places episode. Uh, He has a writing credit from Michael Jackson's Thriller. So he was behind. I mean, it is very much a story. It so. is.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, he has a story credit for the movie Clue, and then we it's have an American Werewolf in Paris. Okay. And then Blues Brothers two thousand. Oh. So so those are his writing credits, and then like I said, he directed this film. Talked about him not too long ago, so I'm just going to quickly run through some of his other directing credits. We have Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, American Werewolf in London, he directed Twilight Zone the movie as well as thriller, Spice Like Us, Three Amigos Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and then he came back to direct Blues Brothers 2000. So
1: I don't know if Three Amigos holds up.
2: Uh It was
1: recently on. Yes, and, it was. Um,
2: yeah, we were watching it not too long ago. Yeah. It you know what like I love Martin Short I love Steve Martin I've made my views well I don't know if I made my views clear on the podcast I'm not like the biggest Chevy Chase fan yeah um it's hard for me to separate out <laughs> what has kind of become known about him as a person anyway off it's track fine. it's, it's fine. fine it's fine okay so <laughs> moving on to the cinematographer on this film which boy what a job he had uh, yeah. <laughs> Stephen M. Katz, and he has some really interesting credits. You know how I love bringing up films with like very fun, strange titles.
1: Oh yeah, and no, he
2: has a lot of them. So let's excellent. let's go through some of these. So, among his film credits, I now I this first one. Okay, so it's called Angels Hard as They Come. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand what that's even supposed to mean. And I was like, Am I reading this right? I I am reading it right, but anyways. I can
1: I can confirm you are reading it correctly. Angels hard as they come. No An- punctuation. No
2: punctuation.
1: So it's not like it's not uh, like a yeah. comma no. or
2: colon or anything like that. Angels but hard as they come. Yeah, exactly. Next we have Messiah of Evil. Mm-hmm. This one I think is fun. Your three minutes are up. They're done. This is the name of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> We have Switchblade Sisters.
1: That sounds just intuitively like it would be a fun movie. Yes, exactly.
2: And then we start to see his collaboration with uh, Landis because he was the cinematographer for the Kentucky Fried movie. Are
1: you really going to skip over his ABC after school specials, including Mighty Moose and The Quarterback Kid?
2: Well, I knew that you were probably going to bring it up. So, <laughs> yeah, I kind of did stick to his film work, but they, thank you for thank you for that because that is that is an important credit. We also have Night Mother, like apostrophe N I G H T like, like uh Goodnight, good night mother. Yeah, Night Mother. Yeah. This one is my, maybe my very favorite of all of these. Nice girls don't explode. Interesting that's a movie that like I feel like I kind of want to see mm. what that's about perhaps and then some of these then become a little bit more well known uh, and God created woman who's Harry Crumb he really yeah. goes in a different direction with his work because then he is credited for Gods and Monsters which is a very different film a very a, a good film a good film but a very <laughs> is, is that what you mean <laughs> oh, I'm sorry I guess I did inherently kind of just diss it's all the very other... <laughs> different it's, it's good <laughs> And then uh and then he comes back to kind of more like broad whatever with baby geniuses. Yeah. So
1: he gets right back on track. Yeah, Excellent. exactly.
2: So that's uh Stephen M. Katz. Okay. All right, all right. So editing, which, you know, actually came up in our conversation with Tommy Joe, uh, George falsey Jr. And unlike a lot of the other individuals that we see who have editing credits, he also has a producing credit yeah. on this film. So a, uh deceptively
1: large amount of power mm-hmm. in what you actually see on the screen yeah
2: absolutely yeah. so amongst some of his editing credits we have and again love this title norman dot 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 is that you mm. <laughs> he was the editor on kentucky fried movie so again this movie of his comes up a lot yeah a lot a lot yeah we have the chicken chronicles i'm sorry the chicken chronicles oh is a movie okay yeah haven't the slightest what that could possibly be about he edited Animal House National Lampoon's Animal House as well as Thriller Mm. was the editor on Coming to America Cheaper by the Dozen and then he kind of takes a swing out from his normal work he was the editor on Hostel and Hostel Part 2
1: those movies are hilarious I think we can all agree
2: (laughs) well actually it kind of got me thinking I was like doing the research okay so like That's just not my... I love horror, but that's not my kind of horror.
1: Yeah, torture porn has never been my kind of horror. Not really
2: my thing. Yeah. But if you had... I was going to ask you this question. So if you had to choose between Uh watching the Hostel franchise or the Saw franchise, because I kind of put those two in the Mm. same category, which one would you pick?
1: I'm probably going to pick Saw only because... At least the first movie, there was some like deeper message that I, I think was trying to be okay. put out there. And I don't really know if that same kind of uh, vibe exists in the Hostel okay. series. So I'd probably pick I'd probably pick Saw. Also, like I just like puppets, and there's like that whole jigsaw puppet looking. And guy. isn't
2: Carrie Always part of Saw? The yeah. software? Okay. I
1: don't know if he's in all of them. I've only I only know that he's in like the first one.
2: I'm just leaning that way yeah. for that alone. So yeah. okay, interesting. He also, back to George Folsey Jr., edited the Pink Panthers. So not the originals, but the ones with Steve Martin. Um Unaccompanied Miners. Hot Tub Time Machine.
1: Just the first one, though.
2: Just the first one. Yeah. And then I saw this and I was like, "Ugh, really? I mean, he's still working." And he his like most current credit, which is like in post-production as we speak, is yeah. called "Will You Be My Quarantine?" Are you
1: pronouncing that right? Am I not? I don't know. I thought it was Quarantine.
2: But it's like Valentine, <laughs> "Will You Be My Valentine?" So that's now why I'm I doing it. it. "Will You Be My Quarantine?" <laughs> that's the way that I read that. I know that it like Quarantine.
1: I hope that's how it's pronounced. I hope they – like, if there's a trailer or anything, I hope that's what they – Because
2: to say, will you be my quarantine – like, that doesn't –
1: It doesn't make as much sense. It doesn't work. No.
2: Not to say that quarantine works. No. But that's the way that I read that. So, we'll see what that's all about one day. Okay. Moving on. So, okay. So, this is really interesting because usually, like, if you're on IMDb and you're looking at credits – The person who composed on a film is pretty high up there. And I realized that, like, I did not see that at all. And so I was like, that's so interesting. Why are they not listing composer?
1: I don't even. Is there an actual composer for the Blues Brothers, or is it more of a collection of music?
2: Right. So, and that's, that makes sense. Like, that checks out why maybe it's not listed in the way it normally would be for a film. I had a scroll, and you have to actually go to the section that's like labeled music department to see. And, it is the,
1: for one for one thing
2: for he, he is listed as composer for the God theme. And it is Elmer Bernstein, who we have brought up before. Amazing, amazing composer. 255 credits on IMDb. Now, we did also bring him up fairly recently because of Trading Places. But I feel like I did not do my due diligence with him because as much as I know we were like Definitely saying how much like he is uh, revered in cinema for his contributions. But I didn't actually go over the accolades that he's received. And again, like awards don't mean everything. But yeah, I don't think I did. Because this is a gentleman, 14 Oscar nominations won once. So I want to just like, I can't say quickly because there's just too much (laughs) of to go over. But I want to right now do that for him. Okay. So first Oscar nomination was in 1955 for The Man with the Golden Arm. He also composed for The Ten Commandments. He gets his second Oscar nom in 1960 for The Magnificent 7. Mm, yeah. And then he starts just racking them up by by year. 61, he gets a nom for Summer and Smoke. 62, he gets two noms for To Kill a Mockingbird as well as Walk on the Wild Side. He also composed for The Great Escape. In 1966, he gets a nom for Return of the Seven. Hmm. In 1966, he also gets two additional nominations for the same movie, Hawaii. Finally, in 1967, he gets his first and only win for the Thoroughly Modern Millie. Okay. Gonna have to see that at some point. He gets an Oscar nom again in 69 for True Grit, so the original True Grit. Yeah. He gets... Yet another in 74 for gold. And then he, you know, starts making some of the film or composing for some of the films that like we're more familiar with. And again, kind of go like the man had range. So he composed for Animal House. So the same person composes for Animal House and the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's... And Slapshot. Yes. Uh, wait. Oh, I didn't even include that one. I can't believe that. I love that movie. So Animal House, Meatballs, which I love, Stripes. Oh, yeah. An American Werewolf in London, so that's kind of where maybe he starts his collaboration with Landis. Gets an Oscar nomination for Trading Places, also composed for Ghostbusters, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, My Left Foot. So he goes back to kind of these more acclaimed films. Um, He gets... (laughs) What? I mean, it's true, right? No, um, yeah, no. More
1: from uh, comedy to drama. Yeah, yeah.
2: exactly. He gets uh, his final two noms are for The Age of Innocence and Far From Heaven, which was 2002, and then a couple more of his credits, Devil in a Blue Dress and Bringing Out the Dead.
1: And Gangs of New York, unused music, uncredited. Oh,
2: that's interesting. He's, yeah. got, he's
1: got several unused music, uncredited credits.
2: How could you not use his music? But anyway, so I'm I'm happy I have a chance to finally give due diligence to this gentleman. Yeah. So. Okay, so moving on to the individuals in this film. Mm-hmm. So a lot of new names, probably outside of Aykroyd. Uh And what's really interesting is, you know, in our very last episode, we made a point of talking about how we see all these cameos by virtue of like the footage that was being used from older films. And I'm like, wow, here we have again, not because of like older footage that was used, just a lot of cameos.
1: Yeah, for very different reasons. And I would argue more, more successful because it wasn't so, well... It wasn't part of the story in the same way that it was intended to be part of the story in Dead Men Don't right. Wear Plaid. It, mm-hmm. it, like it, it, you know, it, it was more fun because you just like, oh, there was Ray Charles, awesome. Mm-hmm. There's Aretha Franklin, awesome.
2: Kind of the same response, I would think, if you didn't know what what, what you were going to see in the film, you're like, oh, hey, you know, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah, that's fair. But but um, yeah, cameos for very different reasons. So, all right, let's start off with John Belushi. So he plays Jake Blues. And, you know, okay, so fun movie. Love this movie. I have to admit, though, that as I was putting together this part of the research, I was getting a little sad. Yeah. Because we have just so many incredible individuals that are no longer with us. And Belushi was the first to leave us, um, passed away just maybe two years uh, after this film came out. So he only has 13 credits yeah. on IMDb. I there mean, there should
1: be way more way
2: more i mean i it speaks to his talent and charisma that he is you know has such a legacy for having really a very short career yeah but like Aykroyd, people probably first became familiar with him on saturday night live and then you know we've talked a couple times already uh he was the breakout star probably of national lampoon's animal house and then among some of his other credits that I don't... You know, I'm really not super familiar with most of them. Going South, Old Boyfriends. He's in 1941 with Aykroyd and Candy, who we will be bringing up shortly.
1: That movie is um, just... I, I want to I wanna bring it up only so that I can say that I do not want to talk about that movie. Okay. Yeah, it, it's... Um, I think it was a Steven Spielberg, a Spielberg movie. movie. Yep. And it just... Uh, it, it looks... It looks wildly like something that I just don't want to watch. And I had kind of been interested. I knew of its existence. And when I was doing some uh, additional research on this movie, I saw I watched a trailer and I'm like, yeah, no,
2: no. It uh, was a troubled shoot. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes things just don't click. Uh, but you know what? I'll let Spielberg off for this one because he more than made up for it, <laughs> both before and after. With I think his, so. He, he's I, yeah. doing okay. It's it's his mulligan. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, and just a couple more credits for Belushi. We have Continental Divide and Neighbors, and mm-hmm. then that's it. That's yeah. it. So, all right. So moving on to his on-screen brother. In this film, Elwood Blues, played by Dan Aykroyd. And a lot of these credits are going to overlap uh, for things that we've already talked about. But, like, as far as his acting credits, again, Saturday Night Live first came on the scene, was in 1941, was in Trading Places, which we just covered a couple episodes ago. Ghostbusters, which we covered last season. Spies Like Us, Dragnet the great outdoors and then he also kind of you know takes a little bit of a diff- different direction in his career and some of his other credits driving miss daisy mm-hmm. my girl and probably maybe one of my top performances that i love him in is gross point blank
1: yes he's excellent in that
2: he's amazing in that movie so all right i
1: want to bring up the one oh, other writing credit sure sure there is a blues brothers tv series announced with that he is uh Credited as the creator of.
2: Okay, it's been announced. It's
1: been announced. That okay. means nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. We'll see where that goes.
1: I didn't just say it. I announced it.
2: You announced it. Um. Okay. Amazing that we have not brought up this actress yet. I mean, eventually we will, because eventually we'll be covering Empire and Return of the Jedi for sure. We will. But this is the first time that we're bringing up Ms. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And we talk about her a lot, actually, with Tommy Joe. Uh, she has just an amazing—and and we do reference that word, like, cameo. Like, she has a, a presence in this film. And usually cameos—I I mean, when I think of a cameo, I kind of think of, like, a one-time appearance in a film.
1: Yeah, her character comes up throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and she obviously plays a significant role— but she also does not have a name,
2: right? So it's kind of this weird. She is mystery in between, woman. Yeah. yeah. She's she's credited as Mystery Woman, and now Carrie Fisher. You know, she's just yeah, an icon. Uh, I just mentioned it. Most people know her, of course, as being Princess Leia slash General Organa mm-hmm. uh, in the Star Wars film. So you know, we have her in. Well, first of all, let me just pre Star Wars actually. She was in the movie Shampoo. So can't say that Star Wars was like her first credit. But that is absolutely how she became known. Uh, So we have A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. And she does do other acting work. We talk about this with Tommy Joe, where, you know, she is just so strongly identified as Leia that it's sometimes hard to think of other roles that she's in. But she was in The Man with One Shoe, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Burbs, When Harry Met Sally outside of this movie that's probably the other movie i think of her in if i'm not thinking about star wars drop dead fred soap dish i'm gonna have to revisit this one she's in scream 3 oh okay so interesting yeah and then also i know i've brought this up before because i do think this is an underrated movie she's in heartbreakers which i happen to like
1: with sigourney weaver and jennifer love hewitt yeah but i don't
2: remember her in it um, okay, so I am a little embarrassed if this is like supposed to be really obvious, and I just never put it together.
1: Well, oh, what's that?
2: Okay, so she's in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Is that title supposed to be a riff off of The Empire Strikes Back? Oh, yes. I just never thought about it. Yeah. Just never thought about it. Definitely. <laughs> I think
1: there's even key art that is an obvious play oh, off yeah, of- Oh, yeah,
2: I kind of vaguely- I, Okay, so obviously I haven't watched the movie, so I never You're, really thought I mean, about it.
1: Look, I I really love clerks. Love clerks. I love clerks. I love a lot of Kevin Smith movies. I don't like some of his horror is just too much. Mm-hmm. Like the there's like a tusk. I don't want to even talk about or or see it. But it's okay. about a guy that turns into a walrus or is like turned into a walrus. Okay. Um. Yeah. But the, she's in it. She's in it, and and, and a, so yeah. it must
2: be like an like they're alluding to. They're kinda of doubling down. I wouldn't be besides surprised. Besides the if title of some, some, some Leia kind of thing going on. He would he, yeah. Okay. I feel like that's a fair fair guess. Okay. She's also in Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, and then she comes back to the Star Wars franchise. Yes. Uh she is in The Force Awakens. She is in The Last Jedi. So she passed in, I believe, the uh December two thousand sixteen at that point i believe she had finished her um her contribution for the last jedi she was very much meant to be part of the rise of skywalker from what i understand what is interesting about her credits now she is in rise of sight like you see the figure who you know as leia in rise of skywalker that being said that was put together through a lot of movie magic okay uh between pulling lines that she said for the other films to like kind of still imagery of her face to body doubles for you know there was a lot that they had to do to try to get her in this final film and so i guess between all of the magic that they had to kind of create for her role she actually does not have a credit for Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Even though you see her in the film, what you believe to be her in the film. Um That's interesting. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. I I don't it's not like I'm mad about it or anything, but I just thought that that was like, "Huh, okay." I mean, I feel like most people would be like, "Why would she not get a credit?" But I suppose
1: Yeah. I I would assume that there were some discussions about what what would be what goes into getting that? Because right. there could still be repercussions for her estate, family. Exactly. I mean, there, there are yeah. reasons to want to have that if you right. if you can. Right. So that's interesting. So
2: yeah, I just kind of noticed that doing my research. And then also, um, I mean, she did do some, some TV work, like mostly like appearances. I mean, she had short stints on some series. But then the one that I think maybe most people would know her from is her voice from Family Guy. So she was in that TV series. Yeah. Okay, so moving on, uh, yet another gentleman who left the industry too soon, his passing comes between Belushi and Fisher, and that is John Candy, mm-hmm. who plays Burton Mercer in this film, and uh, just another really funny, funny guy who left us with so many great films. Uh, he, okay, so unlike Aykroyd and Belushi, but kind of in a similar manner, he came up through SCTV. So really similar in nature. Um, So SCTV, SCTV Network. He, again, was in 1941. So all three of them were together again. I probably, I mean, when I'm thinking, okay, so when I'm thinking of John Candy, to be honest, I'm thinking of some of his earlier work that I really loved, namely Stripes. Love him in Stripes. Um, I like his little, he, I mean, again, I guess you would call it a cameo, his little cameo in National Lampoon's Vacation. I think he's hilarious as a security guard. Yeah. I love him in Splash. I think that's actually my favorite role of his. I think he's just so funny and just has, but has like a lot of heart in that role. I thought
1: your favorite would have been Summer Rental because he wins a boat race wearing a Blackhawks jersey.
2: I know, I know, I know. It's I it yes. I am I am drawn to that role in part because (laughs) of that. But I love him in Splash. So yes, you mentioned Summer Rental. Um, he's also in Brewster's Millions, Volunteers, Little Shop of Horrors, Spaceballs. Planes, trains, and automobiles, which is yep. probably how most people know him. Uh, the Great Outdoors. You think,
1: I mean, he's... You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, people definitely love that movie, but he's... Like, I, th- I think of him in some rental. Uncle Buck, like, Great Outdoors. He's been in... Even though he's kind of like a wacky, like, character in a mm-hmm. lot of his movies, there is enough of a, like, a difference between some of these. Like, I, I think of him as Uncle Buck a lot.
2: That Okay, that's fair. I, I, I have heard people say that that they think of him as Uncle Buck.
1: I do not think of him as Harry Crumb.
2: Which is the titular t- uh character in that film. I can't say I've ever seen it. Um, but he is Harry Crumb and Harry Crumb. What's or who's Harry Crumb? He <laughs> is uh has another really fantastic cameo in Home Alone. Uh he's yes. in JFK. Cool runnings, and then his last credit was for Canadian Bacon.
1: He was actually great in cool runnings.
2: I I think I've seen the movie. It's been a long time. He's the coach.
1: Don't really. Yeah. Yeah. No, No, I
2: know he's in it. I just don't remember much about the
1: movie. He's really good in that.
2: So. Okay. Uh, Moving on. So we bring up this very accomplished actress with Tommy Joe, Kathleen Freeman, who plays Sister Mary Stigmata.
1: I can't believe that I went all my life not knowing that was the character's name. I literally thought her name was just going to be the penguin or penguin. Yeah.
2: I love that name. It's amazing. I think that name is outstanding. I was saying when we were uh, having our chat with Tommy Joe that I was – I couldn't believe that I, like, wasn't more familiar with her work. She – I think of her in this role, and I don't really, like, place her elsewhere – But she has 298 acting credits on IMDb. Kind of insane. Here's the thing, though. As I was going through her work, I was like, this poor woman has uncredited credits in so, (laughs) so many things. So that makes a part of her work. But, man, as an actor, that just must be heartbreaking. I mean, I know that if you don't have an actual line in, like, a show or a film – there are, there's good odds you won't get a credit yeah. for it because then then you're considered, like, background. Yeah. But man alive, I mean, in some of these films... Okay, so her very first uncredited credit is for The Naked City in 1948. You want to know what she's her uncredited credit is? Yeah. I couldn't believe this. Stout girl on <laughs> elevated train. I was like, way to shame her. You could have <laughs> just called her girl on elevated train. Anyway... Okay, so this one's going to come back around. So I put this one in except this was very interesting. 1949, uncredited credit for Mr. Belvedere goes to college. Oh,
1: was that before his TV show?
2: Keep that in mind. Got it. Uncredited credit for a place some some huge films, A Place in the Sun, Greatest Show on Earth, Singing in the Rain, The Bad and the Beautiful, all those uncredited. Wow. She then she does a ton of TV work. I mean, she was on the Loretta Young show, the Bob Cummings show, I put this one in because I just thought it was fun. So she had an appearance on Mister Ed, Oh. and the name of that episode is Clint Eastwood meets Mister Ed. So I'm guessing maybe Clint Eastwood is also. I didn't honestly even check, but I
1: I didn't really want to watch Mister Ed. But Me neither. It, back in the in the dark days Reruns. when yeah, when that's all you had, like you had a few channels. Yeah, whatever's on, you're probably gonna watch it. The whole show was just about a horse that would talk. I don't. Yeah. Did he like solve problems? I can't remember. Mm, or
2: did I don't he even, just like. Never really took to Mr. Ed.
1: Yeah. I can't remember how like interactive he was. Like, was he not just a horse that could talk, but a horse that could like get things Saul done?
2: Solve
1: crimes. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that'd be amazing.
2: Uh, she was in the film, The Nutty Professor. Again, back to her TV work, The Donna Reed Show, The Lucy Show. In the film, Maya Breckenridge, TV series, the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay, Hmm. so I mentioned this at the top of our talk. She's in the movie, Your Three Minutes Are Up. Interesting. Right? She has a – we're going to have to go back to this movie to try to –
1: She's been in, in a ton of TV stuff. That's probably where ton. I recognize her yeah. from. Yeah.
2: I want to go back to the Sting because she has an uncredited credit in that. Oh, So yeah. I want to see what that's about. Yeah. And then it seems like you know she created some relationships because she's in Dragnet. Um, she had a good run in the 80s. She was in Space, *Teen Wolf* T two T O O. chances the one with, are.
1: Um, *Teen Wolf* Two is the one with Patrick. Disney? Oh.
2: Isn't it Patrick Bateman? I thought it was Jason. Jay- no, Patrick it? Bateman oh, from... Oh, a- <laughs> yes! From a- That's amazing. We're keeping that in from American Psycho.
1: <laughs> that would be a very different movie <laughs> very different if Patrick movie. Bateman <laughs> from American Psycho was also able to turn into a werewolf. That'd be a really would, bad time for a would, lot of people. He would
2: love that. Yeah. He would love that. Okay.
1: I think we, are, I think we have something here.
2: <laughs> she was in Chances Are. And then... She did have an appearance on the TV show, Mr. Belvedere. Oh. So it comes full circle. What was,
1: what was her character? I don't know. It was woman. Oh.
2: Mm. so She's still on it. So still counts. Y- we've
1: moved beyond the stout woman on the elevator exactly. train. Now she's just woman.
2: She was in better. Gremlins 2, the new batch, as I did write this one down, Microwave Marge. Mm. She was in the show Growing Pains, uh, voiced DuckTales couple couple last credits Dutch Hocus Pocus she played Peg's mom on Married with Children
1: and she is also in a movie that's not really one of our favorites but I know that um I think it's a generational thing but I know that a lot of people really love Hocus Pocus
2: Yes they do and
1: she is in that so
2: Yes uh not my Halloween movie but no. it's
1: not mine either I but know it I know is that it's
2: much yeah. beloved so she also is in Blue's Brothers 2000.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was on recently, sadly. Mm-hmm. And I saw her and I'm like, "Oh.
2: Did she look much older?" She I did. Remember. I mean, yeah. yeah. Her her magical
1: powers were just in the movie, so yeah. it didn't, yeah.
2: Yeah. And then one of her final credits, uh she voices old woman in Trek.
1: Yeah. yeah. I like that. That's a, that's an awesome credit. <laughs> it's an awesome credit. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay, so I want to quickly then cuz like some of these credits are coming up because of the way like on IMDb, they just list them by appearance. Mm-hmm. So I want to quickly go through... And we do talk about this with Tommy Joe in terms of, you know, getting the band back together. It's a real band or like band members. Can
1: I can I bring up one trooper before uh, we start moving on? I might on be getting the... there. Oh, really? Okay. Oh,
2: no. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead first.
1: I would be remiss if I did not bring up Stephen Williams, who uh, he plays Trooper Mount, and he is also... Perhaps better known in in some circles as Rufus in Supernatural, great great actor.
2: <laughs> You're so happy, anytime it's, Supernatural comes up. <laughs> I mean, it's such an amazing
1: connection. I, I couldn't because I had seen the Blues Brothers obviously so long before I the show had ever been made. And I never made the connection watching the show until we went back and watched Blues Brothers again. And I realized, oh my God, that's Rufus.
2: That's the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good pull. Glad you brought him up. Um, So yes, like the the individuals who make up their band are actual musicians. They're really not actors at all. And I thought it was really interesting (laughs) because with the exception of just one person, their names in the film are just their names. So we have Murphy Dunn. He's Murph in the film we have and it's funny because we have actually two gentlemen who both have the name murphy in their name so it's like a little confusing but we have murph uh gentleman by the name of steve cropper who is steve the colonel cropper yeah willie hall who is willie too big hall tom malone who is bones malone
1: the trombone player of course yes
2: lou Minari, minari how do you say his name I'm not sure. Marini. Why am I even? Yeah, yeah. He's My the goodness. Uh,
1: trumpet player.
2: Blue Lou Marini. Yeah. Then we have the other Murphy, Matt Murphy, who's Matt Guitar Murphy.
1: The other Murph- Murphy is the keyboard, the piano. Yes, yeah. I
2: believe so. And then the only one who has like his own name kind of in the film is Alan Rubin, who is Mr. Fabulous.
1: That's the that's the trumpet player, right?
2: You know better than yeah, me. so, yeah. but uh so I thought it was really interesting. they use all of their real names except for one 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 person, so anyway, all right, moving on to the person who is named head Nazi, Illinois Nazi that's a
1: rough a rough uh credit it's
2: rough credit Henry Gibson, who also very esteemed career. His very first credit was in The Nutty Professor, which I just listed off for uh, Kathleen Freeman. So they were in that together.
1: The original Nutty Professor with... Um, yes. not Yeah, we're not talking about the Eddie Murphy Nutty um, Professor, which we, is...
2: Yes, we're not talking about that one. We're talking about, oh my goodness gracious, James <laughs> uh, Mar- uh, Dean Martin's pal, even though I think they didn't like each other that much. Jerry Lewis? There you go. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. This was a shock to me. Did you know that he actually voiced Wilbur in Charlotte's Web? No. Isn't that crazy?
1: That's a fun That's fact. It's like a
2: childhood like yeah. staple.
1: That that movie is way more scarring than even Optimus yeah, Prime getting really killed. Is. Like way more. It really,
2: it's rough. Yeah. I mean, read the book. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's it's really rough. Uh he was in the film Nash- Nashville, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Basically hit every major (laughs) TV series in the 80s. So he had appearances on Trapper John, M.D., Magnum, P.I., Simon & Simon, The Love Boat, and Quincy, M.E. All the greatest hits. Greatest hits. He has an uncredited credit as the hotel clerk in National Lampoon's Vacation. He also was in Inner Space, also in The Burbs, also in Gremlin 2, the new batch. He was in Biodome. He was in the TV series, the first one, Sabrina and the Teenage Witch. Uh, and then some more film credits. We have Magnolia, Wedding Crashers. Hmm. And then he did A Voice on King of the Hill. And then the TV series, Boston Legal. Okay. Yeah. So Henry Gibson. He's very familiar. Like –
1: he you is. know his face. Like yeah. he
2: he was in a lot of stuff. So. Yeah. All right, so I before we get to all these different cameos, I have to bring up this gentleman because I'm just so confused by what this is about. Okay. So, he's not the head Nazi, but another Nazi, an actor by the name of Gary Houston. Yeah. I'm I'm going to ask you right now and anybody who's listening, To go to IMDb and look up Gary Houston and look at the photograph that they decided to use. It's
1: so obviously a mugshot. It
2: is a straight mugshot. And I tried to look up in a lot of places what this was about. Found no evidence of him having been arrested. I mean,
1: there are other photos of him, but the primary photo that comes up... Looks like, and I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just saying it looks, it looks like, like a, a DUI mugshot. Yes, yeah, he's doing yes. like a, a. It's not a. It's not a
2: and from what I can like if you look like I'm sure that IMDB wouldn't necessarily like have something like that but I looked outside of IMDB like could not find anything (laughs) and actually he seems to be a very successful actor has received accolades for his work seems like a lovely man so I don't understand why that photo is up there for him it's real weird it's real weird Um, but to give you a little bit of background on his work so he was in uh, some of his films class major league he has an uncredited credit because i think they um scrapped the scene in a league of their own mm. he was in hoffa fargo the film fargo okay. watchmen
1: he the also film
2: the, the film yeah. yep uh he also was on the tv series fargo and then currently so he's like working right now um he is filming a fargo christmas story so i just like if anybody knows what is the story behind that photo of him I'd love to know. There are four photos
1: listed. 3 of them are perfectly reasonable photos. 2 of them are when he was younger. Yes. One of them he is obviously it's it's more current. And then the fourth photo is just perplexing. I don't know. I don't, I don't get know it. What
2: it's about. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on. What? <laughs> I just had to bring that up. <laughs> to all these amazing cameos that are in this film. So like our last episode just like amazing to see some of these people in there I mean one is I know probably your personal favorite Frank Oz
1: yeah that's a fun one I mean he's come up it's it's this is the third time he's come up. I mean, mm-hmm. between Trading Places and mm-hmm. The Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Frank Oz and then we do talk about a lot of these just amazing musicians and performers with Tommy Joe, but we have Cap Callaway, James Brown, Chaka Khan, John Lee Hooker, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Steve Lawrence, and then we kind of veer away from musicians and we have Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He's he's pretty good. He's pretty good. We have Twiggy. Do you know who Twiggy is?
1: I I had to look it up. Okay. Yeah. I and I looked it up a while ago and I've already forgotten.
2: She's the woman that, you know, has the like little interlude with Elwood and yeah, like trying to yeah. So that's Twiggy, who was a very famous model in the sixties. Yeah. So That's the
1: that's the joke that you probably won't get if you didn't know who she was, but that's why it was hilarious that she's like showing up on a little roadster at this gas station. And Elwood's hitting on her, and she actually shows up at the hotel that he, like, tells her about.
2: And And it's just a really interesting cameo of all the—I don't know how that connection happened.
1: That uh, Twiggy
2: would be the one, but—
1: She assumes that he's working at the gas station, and he charges something, some insane— $94. Yeah, and— He's like, here's your here's your change. And she's like, oh, you can go ahead and keep it. And that look that he has on his face. Like the "Mm." thing
2: is, is that he crazy (laughs) overcharged her. So it's like, dude, yeah, it's okay that she tipped you out a dollar. (laughs) But anyway. All right. So moving on to like they're they're not cameos in the sense where these people were already famous. But it's like in retrospect, it's like, oh, that's so and so. So we have Paul Rubens. Who is the waiter mm-hmm. at the restaurant? And we have Devroe White, hello from Die Hard.
1: Yeah, the kid yeah. who
2: tries to steal the guitar. Argyle. Argyle. He,
1: Argyle yep. in Die Hard, mm-hmm. in the Blues Brothers, he's the kid that almost gets blown away by Ray Charles.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, John Landis has like he puts himself in the film he's for one a hot of the second. Troopers, yeah, yeah. And actually, John Belushi's wife is also in the film. She's oh. one of the cocktail waitresses. Uh, when they go to meet up with the first set of guys that they want back for the band. So okay. she's in that scene. And then a couple uncredited credits, Mr. T, <laughs> yes, and then James yeah. Avery from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. The the Mr. T one is incredible. Now I have to rewatch it and see yeah. if I can
2: find him. I, I was like, okay, we're going to have to... I think he's like Man on Street yes. or something like that. Yeah, so. it
1: may, it's probably before the uh, diner with bet uh, yes. it's betting. about that time yeah yep,
2: yep all right so that is us getting through all the I mean there are so many people in this movie I'm
1: not joking when I'm saying that I could have an entire season of this podcast just talking about this movie
2: so, I believe you yeah I believe you Derek
1: I need you to believe
2: me <laughs> all right synopsis all right ready Jake Blues, just released from prison, puts together his old band to save the Catholic home where he and his brother Elwood were raised.
1: That's completely accurate. That's like one of the most spot-on accurate uh, synops- synopses mm-hmm. that we've that we've seen. And what I love about it is that it's it's like as deadpan as the movie is, because that's accurate. Yes,
2: yes. The only issue I take with the synopsis is that. Yes, I know that it was Jake's idea to get the band back together. It but- was
1: God's idea.
2: Okay, sure, but he they like don't I think give Elwood enough credit in also being behind this plan. Like, yes, I know it was Jake's idea. That's fair, but like Elwood is just mentioned at the very end, and it if you wouldn't. If you didn't know anything about this film, you might not even know that Elwood was an active part of it because the only way that he's referenced is that he used to live in that Catholic home with Jake.
1: If you're looking through films to watch and you come across the synopsis of the Blues Brothers and you're like, I don't know if there was if it told me a little bit more about this Elwood character, I might watch it. Then this is the podcast for you because now <laughs> we've just we've just told you you should watch it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a fair synopsis. It is. I think it could use a little tweaking. But anyway, Okay, so we are about to jump into our conversation with Tommy Joe, but before we do, montage.
1: Oh, are there montages?
2: There's a lot of them actually. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's like kind of hard to they're and they're all essentially involve like the car chases. okay like a lot of them um, and especially like that final one because they are literally driving hours and they kind of fast forward through that. You know, they're, what, 106 miles away from Chicago. So mm-hmm. that takes a minute yeah. to get there, more than a minute. But they. I mean,
1: at their rate of speed, it probably took them 45 minutes.
2: That's a good point. That's a great point. They were flying. But uh, they were flying. But yeah, so I mean.
1: We should have asked Tommy Joe about that. I about think the, we did the... ask. No, him. about the time. Like.
2: Oh, oh, how long it would have.
1: That's more of just like a physics question. <laughs>
2: it's like what you get on a test. If yeah. you leave.
1: Distance equals weight exactly, time. Exactly,
2: exactly. So, all right. On that note, let's jump into our conversation with Tommy Joe. Let's do it. And so we are so very thrilled to have with us today NASCAR Xfinity Series driver Tommy Joe Martins. Tommy Joe, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you guys a lot for uh, for having me on. I'm excited to talk about one of my, uh, one of my all-time favorites.
1: Yes,
2: same here. Like, we we love this movie. I mean, obviously, 80s movies in general we love, but this one is a particular favorite for us, too, and we feel like there's uh, some really interesting crossover between this film and, and what you do in your own life, so we're totally thrilled to just, like, jump in and uh, have a good old conversation. So, as I typically do, first question that I have for you is... Do you have a particular memory of the first time that you saw this movie, and you know maybe what the circumstances were if you happen to remember, and what you thought of it when you first saw it?
0: Yeah, so this movie was introduced to me in high school, uh, so okay. th- this is going to date me. I graduated in two thousand and five, um, so for anybody that uh, is listening, thirty four is considered very old in the NASCAR world, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the real world, but in the NASCAR world. Not at all in the real little, world, yeah. Yeah, it's considered a little old, but it was introduced to me in, in high school, and, and it was really around the time that I had my first girlfriend, and she was a big fan of the movie and introduced it to me. And she was also pretty musically inclined, so I understand like why she kind of mm-hmm. gravitated towards the movie, which is this weird mismatch of like an SNL skit, musical... Like action movie, mm-hmm. I, like it's just I've never seen another movie like it, and I fell in love with it uh, in high school. I thought it was so funny, and just relentlessly funny, and it's so deadpan in the delivery mm-hmm. uh, with every joke, and that just plays to it. Uh, and so I just loved it ever since the first time I saw it. And on top of that, it was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, a culture piece for me because I grew up. In Mississippi. That's my home state. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. A lot of blues, rock and roll uh, yeah. musicians in the movie, people that I had heard of. I mean, John Lee Hooker's in the movie, Ray Charles mm-hmm. is in the movie. Uh, these are all kind of fixtures around the Memphis and, and Mississippi, like blues scene. Uh, Donald Duck Dunn and all the guys in the band. Those are real mus- musicians. Those are not actors. And so oh, yeah. I found out I mean, all this. <laughs> great choice you know, that
2: they made to do that.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. So uh, it was such a cool thing. And, and the more I learned about it, the more I liked it. And I've, I've probably seen the movie, you know, a dozen, 15 times in my life. I mean, I just love it.
2: And so – you, okay, so you mentioned that you were in high school when you first saw it. So at this point in your life, you're, you know, you just mentioned how you were familiar with a lot of the musicians who were a part of the film. Did you already have any kind of affinity for either Dan Aykroyd or John Belushi? Like, were those two actors that you were a fan of? Um, like, what were your thoughts about them and their kind of humor? You
0: no, know, I, I think I just heard of the Blues Brothers just as like a character Got it. piece. But I didn't really yeah. know Belushi. Uh, I think Ackroyd, probably the the best thing I knew him from was Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. That was probably mm-hmm. like my you know uh, knowledge of him. Uh, and then of course in college, everybody has the Belushi poster up on the wall of him just wearing the, <laughs> the, the sweatshirt <laughs> that says college. And so that exactly. was my understanding <laughs> of, of Belushi it was Animal House, and and then found out more about his time at SNL and and really how. I didn't even know that Blues Brothers was an SNL skit. Like, I didn't even know mm-hmm. this movie was an SNL movie, really, uh, which yeah. now we've had so many of those that were kind of spinoff movies from SNL skits. So, no, I, I really hadn't been introduced to them before this. This was kind of my <laughs> my real uh, kind of understanding of them as a pair.
2: Which, you know, I mean, I guess the elephant in the room is, of course, Belushi left us far too soon. Um, you know, I'm sure you, being such a big fan of the film, know that they were just uh, off-screen, had a really tight friendship. Um, so I think that that really plays on screen, just that that chemistry between them. I mean, wasn't Belushi going to be in Ghostbusters? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you aware of that, Tommy Joe, that um, he was actually meant to be uh i think the Venkman, bill- yeah right? he was yeah. meant to be kind of the bill murray character.
0: Ah, Okay well okay let's let's play let's play recasting here. I mean now that we've seen <laughs> ghostbusters if you had the opportunity to swap that would you swap it?
1: I would not. No. I don't
2: think i know this is so I don't think i would either. I don't think i would either. And i think that uh what ended up happening is that you know, because Aykroyd, and this is funny to me because, you know, I know he's known primarily as, you know, comedic actor, but he did the heavy lifting writing-wise on both Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, and both scripts were, like, crazy long. Like, hundreds. 300 <laughs> pages long. Well, and this this movie feels like
0: the script... Yeah, this this movie feels like the script was three hundred pages long. Uh, Blue Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just Landy goes on and yes. on, and it feels <laughs> like it was written by about six different people that weren't really told what the movie was. <laughs> we You're, wind I, up. I in, agree with you. In in seventeen different settings, uh, it, I, <laughs> like some totally of the, agree. The, some of the music numbers. Uh, almost feel completely disconnected from each other. Like, at, you know, like the the one scene where they're at the uh, the diner uh, oh, yeah. with, with Aretha Franklin versus the scene where they're at Ray Charles' place buying the instruments and they're literally having the entire town dancing outside. Like, it's just, a, <laughs> it's, it's a nonsensical
1: movie. <laughs> and, and it I makes mean, sense that the even, script uh... was so long. You didn't even get to the backflipping vehicle.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes. The blues mobile. Yeah. yeah. Or, well, or no. them
1: in the church doing backflips
0: over the pews <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. I mean, all of this is just so over the top.
2: I mean you're bringing up so many great points. I think that like in terms of what ended up happening and I know that this is a, you know, podcast about the Blues Brothers, but because we brought it up, you know, as far as Ghostbusters is concerned, I think what ended up happening is that Aykroyd, because of Belushi's passing obviously was not going to be a part of the film, but uh Slimer was a bit of a homage Interesting. to Belushi and you know, most, I, I would say most people kind of knew him more from his uh, animal house persona than any other. And so that version of him was kind of the homage and Slimer was Slimer. They should have given him um, a little Slimer sweater. That would have been cute. Yeah, but to <laughs> Slimer get with college, to, with a college sweater yeah. on <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I feel like that would have been a real like, okay, Dude, that's we, a hit. we know who this where's, is. Yeah. Where's the marketing um, department? That's a hit. <laughs> <laughs> but to to get back to what you're saying, I mean, that's what I find so interesting about the Blues Brothers is I completely agree with you that many parts of the film feel really disconnected. And to be honest, if they didn't have all these musical interludes, it would be a 20 minute movie. So it, it it's an interesting juxtaposition because the story is is founded on all of these different musical numbers, which really don't like really forward the story. They're kind of like you said, all these little vignettes. I mean, it's just about getting literally getting the band back together. Um, but it still makes for a really enjoyable film. And, you know, you mentioned that this was a a SNL skit and I feel like it's probably between, would you say that between this and, um, Wayne's world, Oh, yeah. Do you think that these are probably the two most successful skits that have made it to the big screen?
0: Yeah. You know, so I was thinking about that before we came home with the pod. Uh, the ones that that jump out to me uh, when we start talking about SNL, I mean, you got to think Night at the Roxbury. That is like such a cult movie that yeah. <laughs> I think people are either <laughs> yeah. all the way in or all the way out on that movie. <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably another one. Um, same thing with Superstar. I think that was another one uh, mm, that that popped in my yes. head. I think that was a flop, the Ladies Man. <laughs>
1: ladies Man the is ladies another man one with uh, Leon Leon Phelps, I think
0: yes. With who? Which? Yeah, and you got to oh, admit, like, okay, name. got it. Some of these probably just go off better on SNL. I don't know what it was about the Blues Brothers that just translated to the big screen. I think better than than just about any of them. Uh, it, mm-hmm. And maybe it was just the chemistry of the two leads. And I think the delivery of all the jokes being just so deadpan and dry with all of this nonsensical craziness going on around them, maybe that dynamic just always works with humor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, even at the very beginning when Jake is upset that he's just been picked up from his prison release in a cop car and they jump over the, Brit the, was the 95th street mm-hmm. bridge And his response is, car's got a lot of pickup and that's That's the
2: only (laughs) acknowledgement he'll give. Yeah. Yeah. You're
1: like, wait, what, what is this movie? What is happening? Yeah. And and that's like one of the tamer stunts that that takes place.
2: But I'm glad you brought up that uh, scene in particular, because I think that does set the tone for the film. I think that once you see that happen, you know, that we're not in for like a realistic, film like and it it (laughs) clues you in to like there's going to be some really absurd moments well yeah
1: as as Tommy Joe mentioned it is relentless in that because it goes from there to suddenly I'm watching Carrie Fisher try to assassinate them with Mm -hmm. a uh, rocket launcher and their response is to just dust themselves off Mm -hmm. blows up the whole building never yeah they don't acknowledge (laughs) it until the end of the movie when when Elwood's finally who is this (laughs) yeah It's tremendous. Like, one thing that I always
0: love in a script and in a movie is when they just bring you into a setting with, like, very little exposition at all and, like, welcome to the Blues Brothers because they do that the entire movie. They just assume nothing. They just don't care that you don't know what any of these people are. You don't know anything. Like, perfect example, Jake and Elle would walk into that same building that's about to get leveled. And the one comment is by the guy sitting on the couch. He goes, where's my cheese whiz, boy?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who's that guy? We, we don't He's know so anything happy. about that. <laughs> so happy to get his cheese whiz.
2: Get his line. Yeah. <laughs> You
0: know, and they go yep. right up to the room, and it's basically a broom closet, and the trains going by. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's just so over the top. And then you talk about like Carrie Fisher showing up, which we got to spend it like at least five minutes talking about Carrie Fisher in this movie.
2: <laughs> let's do it. That's, I mean,
0: we want to do it right now. We just want to jump into the yeah, Carrie Fisher talk. It,
2: no, let's so, absolutely do it because I mean, at this point in time. So when you first saw this film. I, I don't want to assume anything, but were you already familiar with her as you know part of being part of the Star Wars franchise?
0: So that's the craziest part of this, y'all. And and I feel like both she and Mark Hamill suffered from you know the Star Wars just covering their entire lives. And like right. I, if I had seen Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher in anything, it wouldn't have even like like jived in my head that that's who that was. Right, like they were such the characters of Mm. uh, Luke and Leia that literally, I if I even saw them in anything else, I'm just like, oh, that's Luke and Leia, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that Carrie Fisher was, I I guess, so different in this movie than the character of Princess Leia, at least this is again in my high school brain when I first saw this, I didn't even realize that was her. That was just oh, some wow. crazy okay. lady in the movie. Like it didn't even hit me <laughs> until now I got older and have watched this again. It was like, oh my God, it's Carrie Fisher in this movie. <laughs> and well, and it finally hit. And would this be like okay, this is me not knowing the Carrie Fisher filmography, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. had to be like a signature performance of Carrie Fisher's career, right?
2: I would no. I would definitely agree with you. I mean, at this point, as far as like back in that era, so this came out the same year as Empire Strikes Back, and so she definitely already had like huge notoriety for being Princess Leia. But I do think that like in her overall film filmography, besides the Star Wars franchise, I think this is a role that people know her from, and then probably when Harry Met Sally,
1: yeah, are probably the yeah. two
2: that people also associate her with, but you're totally right. I mean, it's this really weird condition of being a a actor who happens to be in like a global sensation film where that is just how you're kind of locked in, in the perception of many fans eyes. Like she is forever princess Leia. And I don't think she ever had a problem with that per se. Um, But, and you're right to bring up Mark Hamill because same, you know,
1: for Mark Hamill, he's, On screen, he's most known for being Luke Skywalker, Mm -hmm. but he's done a ton of voice work on a lot of um, like, he's the Joker. He does the voice for the Joker on a lot of uh, animated stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And outside of her acting work, Carrie Fisher was actually a really uh, reputable script doctor in Hollywood. She did a ton of like rewrites and writing on different scripts. So they both kind of like, veered into other facets of the industry. But you're right. I mean do you You
0: think they did that on purpose though, Anna? Because like it feels like that's kind of like a the fallback, right? I mean, I want you to think about this. So we're talking about Carrie Fisher. This is this is the lady that played Princess Leia, a character that is like known worldwide, just over the top. Her character's name in this movie is literally Mystery Woman. Right. <laughs> it's literally mystery woman. <laughs> and we're saying like, yeah, that's a signature role for her. It's like, what? <laughs> what are we talking I,
2: about? I wish I could, you know, I mean, because you're bringing up like a, a, a great question here in terms of like, what was maybe the strategy be- behind putting her into the film? And who knows? I don't know if she like just wanted to do something totally off the wall Something completely different from you know this Star Wars world that she was already such a part of.
0: But was it Anna? Was like like think about think I about the casting here? But think about what her character does. She basically just shows up and is a badass, and like that's what Leia does in all the Star that's Wars true. movies. Yeah, she just shows up and is a bit. I guess they were like, you know what? We need a badass. And they're like, oh, She's Carrie like, I Fisher. Can
1: handle, uh, I can handle a flamethrower. I can handle a rocket launcher. <laughs> right. I, I can handle a machine gun, but I'm not going to hit anything. Yeah, it's I know. It's
2: basically a it, cameo.
1: Was-
0: I mean, what is she in? Like yeah. four yeah. scenes?
2: Well, that, that actually kind of leads to another thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, we've kind of – we've touched on it already in terms of – all the different musical uh figures that are part of this film but that was the one thing that has always struck me about this movie is that how were they able to bring in so many people James
1: Brown Aretha yeah. Bre- I mean, it's it's insane
2: It's insane that they got all of these figures and I you know I don't ha- like I don't have the research of like how exactly these conversations were had and how they maybe convinced these people to be part of it but it's kind of amazing that like yeah between just the legit actors like Carrie Fisher who are part of it where I would agree with you I think it's kind of this like really interesting cameo-ish role for her but then also all these other hugely uh popular figures I will say that I think at this part in time I did um read this one book where they were talking about kind of like you know now we think of Ray Charles Aretha Franklin you know all these figures is just these legends, uh, legends yeah. icons in, in the music world. But at that time in 1980, their brand of music wasn't actually the brand of music yeah. that everybody was listening right. to. I mean, disco was kind of on its way out, but still very popular, Um, like new wave, you know, like what you think of as 80s music.
1: That I mean, the movie and the music they played was in some ways a response to that because mm-hmm. they actually have like their own album separate from the movie, a briefcase mm-hmm. full of bl- blues that kind of is like a direct response to disco mm-hmm, pre-programmed mm-hmm. disco they they kind of like talk about how their music is intended to bring people back to what they consider like this this like i guess real music i don't want to say disco's not real but i kind of also want to say disco's <laughs> not real yeah
2: there's some good disco songs out there but <laughs> <laughs> there are.
0: but you're um, right i mean but this is this is a cameo based movie i mean i can't yeah. really think of i mean we talk about like a movie with main characters like wh- who are the supporting characters in this movie? Like if you if you were going to nominate someone for best supporting actor in Blues Brothers, could you even do it? Like
1: is anybody else even in the movie hmm. long enough? I'm going to give it to Mrs. Toronto. I mean Tarantino. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say that uh and I was I was actually, you know, when I did I we always open each podcast with kind of just like a rundown of all the main players in each film, and I was a little bit ashamed of myself that I wasn't as familiar with Kathleen Freeman, who plays Sister Mary Stigmata. Oh, yeah. Uh, What's her name? Sister Mary (laughs) Stigmata. (laughs) You didn't know that? That's her name. Um, I can't
1: believe I never... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. She,
2: for having actually even far less screen time than Carrie Fisher, definitely makes an impact. I don't know if that's, like, qualification for a Best Supporting Actress nom, but she, uh, you know, we're... Tommy Joe, were you familiar with her work at all? Like I, I wasn't. I didn't realize that she has two hundred and ninety-eight <laughs> wow. IMDb credits. What? Is this an actress that you were familiar with? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no this this lady is only this nun. That is it. That is all. Exactly. Right. She is to me, and I would be scared of this woman hitting me with a ruler, yeah. levitating, uh, scolding me for different <laughs> things. Yes, all the above.
1: So my dad actually went to Catholic school and that scene really hit hard.
2: For him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I mean, that is the one thing that, you know, you were mentioning it earlier, Tommy Joe, in terms of like just throwing you into this world. And I. Am fascinated by this part of the world that they explore, the fact that, like, this is where they grew up. There's this tremendous amount of fear around her in this world. But also, you know, the lengths that they go to to save it shows that there's also this, like, amount of love that they have for it. Whether that love comes out of fear, I don't know. But, you know, it's this really (laughs) interesting juxtaposition. And it kind of, for me, I don't know if this is going to... The connective tissue will make sense. But like, I think part of the reason why I also really love this movie is because they're just like these two really passionate men who don't really on the surface show their emotion. But between just these little moments, like the first time is when, you know, Jake is released and they immediately hug, you know, showing the love that they have for each other. And then, you know, later on when Elwood, he he initially is like really... Annoyed that Jake fell asleep in his bed, but then, you know, he puts the blanket over him. Hey, you
1: sleaze. That's yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's these
2: like really little moments. I think them saying that they're going to, you know, save the the orphanage yeah. is is another one of those moments. The, w- the way that they feel so committed to, you know, I know it's like kind of side by side, but like bringing the band back together, like there's all these little moments that show, even though, like you said, everything is so deadpan, the delivery is so dry, but beneath it is actually a lot of like passion and love for whatever is going on in their life. Does that make sense to you?
0: It it does. It's just, we're talking about all of this draped in a completely nonsensical way, right? I mean, all of this is just so, and it almost feels episodic in in a way where Mm -hmm. you're right. Like what's the driving force behind the plot of the movie? We got to get the band back together. We got to do one big gig and then we're going to raise the money, right? And then we got to get the money Mm -hmm. back to the courthouse. And so that that brings us on this whole crazy thing. And I guess you're right. What's the genesis of that? Well, it's caring where they're from and and, and kind of reconnecting Mm -hmm. to that and really being scolded and told that they're a couple of shitheads by the nun (laughs) (laughs) who basically guilt trips them into, like, going to church with James Brown, yelling at them, and having a revelation about saving the orphanage.
1: I mean, I couldn't have written a better synopsis of this movie than that. Yeah, well done. That's spot on. (laughs)
2: <laughs> for for it being such a crazy movie, that's a pretty tight way of describing what actually happened. I
1: would have said two former musicians have to pay Steven Spielberg five thousand dollars.
2: Another <laughs> cameo. cameo, yeah. Did Another you, cameo. So I know, you know, being a high schooler, uh, you know, you mentioned that like it didn't it didn't initially like uh, click for you that like Harry Fisher of Star Wars was that person. Did did you? know that you were watching Steven Spielberg in his cameo?
0: No, I didn't know that until a few years ago either. I, like, So I, I didn't pick any of this up. And there's just so many people in this movie. And, and really, we're going to have to spend an entire 10 minutes talking about the musicians in this movie. And and the idea of like getting all those people together for one thing is just in, incredible. Uh, but I guess in a way... Really, you only had to come in... I mean, realistically, how long did this take to shoot? They shoot all of those scenes in like a day and a half, probably. Like the diner scene with Aretha Franklin. Like, was that a long shoot? I I wouldn't assume that it was
1: it it was difficult it was challenging only because some of the musicians weren't as used to uh like the thing yeah. performance so
2: yeah yeah y- yeah. yeah i would so, say aretha yeah. she does pretty good on the acting front like she i think is pretty realistic as like this like pissed off girlfriend
1: matt guitar she, murphy is is less adept at the yeah acting.
2: i mean he's That's- he's kind of adorable because he's so bad
0: <laughs> so what we're addressing here is the elephant in the room that we were like, wow, what an awesome movie for having all these musicians in it. And like, you know, there's a reason why you generally have actors play musicians in movies. Exactly. Because because the, the, the breadth of acting talent in this movie, has there ever been a wider gap in a really good movie than this, where you've had literally, I've never acted at all to like, Ackroyd and Belushi and John Candy in a movie where we've got that width of acting talent mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in one yeah. movie, in one scene even.
1: Mm-hmm. Then some of the band members when, you know, when Cab Calloway is talking about how the, you know, they have to have this big show for the kids. And one of them, oh God, I can't remember um, who it was. Why? What's, what's going to happen to the kids? That was right. the the line. I'm like, <laughs> well, Man, they line. You know, it.
2: you you <laughs> actually bring up an interesting figure because I do think I I think it's an interesting uh, kind of space to explore when you're talking about musician versus like performer, and and I do think that that's that's something that Cab Calloway. Very clearly shows in this film is that yes. yes, he's this amazing musician, but he is a performer.
1: Yeah, no, he was he was great. He's yeah. kind of like he's the incredible. outlier among yes. all the music. Yeah,
2: yeah, incredible. He is, he is a true performer. He, if maybe you didn't know anything about his musical background, you would, I, I would think that he is a legitimate actor. Like he is just this person that they cast in this role. And, and, you know, because he, he is so strong
1: from the very get go. His, his first line, I think is you you boys have to learn to not talk to nuns like that. Right. Right. Like when they (laughs) drop down the stairs.
2: So he, I think is, I mean, I, I won't say necessarily like outlier because again, I think Aretha Franklin, she did Great in her role. I mean, you know, going back to uh, what you were saying, Debbie Joe, like that is the one thing where, you know, Derek and I, we always watch, uh, rewatch these films like the night before we speak to our guest. And so we're watching it last night. I was like, man, I feel so sorry for that editor who is trying to piece together her performance because (laughs) it's, it is, it is very obvious that they were just struggling to, to, yeah, yeah. to sync it up. So Um, here, okay,
0: let's, let's do a quick rankings here. Of the sure, sure. musicians in the movie, we agree Cab Calloway is probably number one. Who's who's your number mm-hmm. two? Um, because I'm going James Brown. Yeah, hundred percent.
2: Oh, sure. I think, yeah. I think
0: James yeah. Brown in the church, absolutely incredible. And then probably my number three is probably going to be Ray Charles in the music. uh yeah. in, in the music store. That's him. Him pulling out the gun and shooting at the kid. Just yeah, incredible stuff.
2: Yeah. By the way, little little trivia. Tommy Joe, are you at all a fan of the movie Die Hard?
0: I am a big fan of the movie Die Hard.
2: So that kid that was trying to steal that guitar.
0: That oh my God! Is that is the, kid the, limo in the limo driver?
2: Oh yes. my God! Argyle, yes. yes. Argyle,
0: That's him. incredible. That's
2: him. Yeah, <laughs> another cameo. I mean, cameo before he was, you know that I'm wondering that had to have been one of his very first yeah. roles.
1: I, I think that was like a super fun scene with uh, Ray Charles, but I do feel they did him dirty while giving him the X-Men ability of firing the gun at that kid to put the poster upside down.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. come on. Yeah. How are you going to do him right. like that? I, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I, that was like low hanging fruit yeah. for them to put in that joke, <laughs> but to get back to your rankings. Okay. So I find this very interesting. Yes. I think Cab Calloway, like far and away, number one, uh agreed James Brown would be second I think for me it'd probably be a little a little bit of a tie between Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin I think they both in their individual scenes pulled off what they needed to pull off um and then you know you mentioned uh at the top of our chat John Lee Hooker but he kind of is just doing like he's not really playing a character he's just yeah he just, just like walk by him on him. the street yeah, yeah, exactly it's, it's just him, him playing it's- a
0: show basically
2: exactly so that's what we were talking about too is like you know getting again all these different figures into this film and i'm curious if like with him he's like well i'll be in your movie but i'm just gonna <laughs> like i'm not gonna play a role I'm i'll just be gonna- on right. the street at this time exactly this yeah don't ask
0: me to say lines
2: <laughs> and then what's also interesting so in that uh like what would you call it sauna the sauna scene, yeah. Um, are, are you familiar <laughs> with Steve Lawrence? So he's a different kind of performer. He, uh, I mean, he's also a performer, but obviously not part of like really this like blues world. Is that their agent? Yeah, guy. Okay, yeah, yes. yeah, and yes. and so I thought that was another really interesting cameo. I thought he did quite well. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, I think he is more so in the category of performer. So, cause I think, you know, he did all kind of the Vegas stuff and he was like that kind of figure.
1: He was one of a couple of guys, including uh, the nun, the penguin mm-hmm. who made a triumphant return to the sequel, which we probably don't want to talk about as much. Oh yeah. yeah. We're not going to talk about that.
2: We're, we're just okay, going to okay. disavow that. We're going to, yeah. I had to,
1: I had to at least address it to see where we all stood. Now, I Yeah. We, yeah, prob- we no. probably should have we brought were-
0: that up at the beginning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's that's fair. I mean, I Derek and I typically uh come down pretty hard on sequels that are like 20, 30 years removed from the original because it feels like it's it's not really necessary. They are rarely point.
1: successful. They are
2: rarely successful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, just uh, recast it and call it I mean, like if you just want to do a, another Blues Brothers movie, great, but don't act like it's a sequel. Like, let's not, right. let's not pretend.
2: I agree with you. I agree. Like if lost you lost a lot
1: of the magic because a mm-hmm. lot of the, the nonsensical stuff, it really hits hard the first time you see it because you don't really know what's going on. It's a lot of fun. Even though there's like this weird mishmash of performances on the acting side, it all works because it, it feels like you're always in on the joke. Like everyone's mm-hmm. kind of in on, mm-hmm. on what this movie is. And to try to recreate that decades later, Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough challenge.
2: Yeah. So we
0: talk about the mismatch here a little bit. I I just want to touch on that. Sure. The the one thing that I should have done before I got on the podcast with you guys is find out who the editor of this movie is, because I think it might've been the funniest editing job in the history of, of movies. There are so many cuts in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> that back-to-back yeah. make absolutely no sense at all, and at the same time are terrific. They they are just the best. I'm just going to go down a like, quick little list of the best cuts in the movie. <laughs> obviously, obviously, we talk about in the church, the people just flying over the pews. I mean, that's yeah. just, right. trami- just backflips over the pews. That's just a gut-busting laugh. Each and every time, uh, the Nazis driving off the bridge. Yes, uh, oh, the the yeah. ba- the backflip so of the car, and then just the car flying through the air, just flying through when the air like over as the high city, as the
2: Sears Tower. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and yeah, I clearly think you see the Hancock Tower. Yeah, clearly over the river, and then somehow yeah. lands in the middle of the city, and then the Blues Brothers jump it as it creates yeah. a crater. Somehow, I so continuity there. It's like they just completely went, nobody cares about this. That's not it's, what this movie's it's about. A, it's beautiful. All <laughs> the cuts, <laughs> this is amazing. In, all the cuts inside of the mall while we're doing the police oh, yeah. chase
1: mm-hmm.
0: just incredible stuff. Again, uh, the cut with Cab Calloway as he's talking to the band. As the Blues Brothers are stuck outside and can't get in, they're having to sneak around and the crowd's getting restless. And Cab Calloway just goes, hit it, and then turn around yeah. and they're all in white tuxedos.
2: Love it. Yeah.
0: They're in a full band regalia and just play. Yeah. And then when the song ends, they're not. They're all just back to what they were. It, <laughs> it's like
2: I thought that was- they just
0: eventually gave up on continuity in this movie and it's glorious.
2: I completely agree. I, in particular, actually really loved that segment with uh, Cab Calloway because I felt like that was a way to kind of honor him in the era in which he was probably most popular. Yeah, that was. Yeah. And I time thought that, definitely. yeah i th- I thought that that was like a really beautiful way to kind of give tribute to him in that moment. And the tails on the suit your, and everything. Yeah, it was just it was gorgeous. And to answer your question, so. The gentleman who edited this, uh, George Folsey Jr. And what's interesting about this particular film is, you know, usually editing is kind of its like own thing. You bring him in and they do their work and then they're gone. He's also a producer on the film. So he actually had wow. <laughs> uh, more of a role on it than an editor typically ever does. And so it's very possible that he was one of those figures saying like this is how this is going to look eventually. Like this yeah. is how I want it to go. He
1: had more power. Do, do you it. think,
2: do you think it yeah. was more done
0: power. right? Like do you think it was done in the pre-movie in like pre-production like hey this is going to be pretty goofy. We just need to accept it or do you think when they got into the editing room they went Oh shit! This is going to make any
1: sense. I want to believe just- that there is a there's a room of Blues Brothers storyboard material somewhere. It,
2: you know, it's a it's an interesting question to ask, and like I want to say, oh yeah, they knew all along that this is the way they wanted it to be. But from <laughs> anything that yeah. I know about, like just stories I've heard about uh you know the there was this, a lot of drug use. a lot involved. of drug you know like Lots. it just feels like it was just a free-for-all both in terms of activity and then also budget like i did um <laughs> did see something yes. and, you know i usually uh give a grain of salt to some of these stories because you just don't know unless you hear it firsthand but i did hear that john landis at one point the director uh you know the Somebody said, "Oh, the budget for this is $17 million." He's like, "Well, we already blew through that." Like, like that. It was right. just like, "Well, that's ridiculous." Like, that's not. That's thought, not our uh, budget. I
1: thought you were going to bring up the cocaine budget.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, is that something that yep. you've heard as well, Tommy <laughs> Joe?
0: As a rumor, I'm sure. It. I'm sure it was a very significant budget in this movie. Uh, yeah. I just think about the car <laughs> crash scenes. Like yeah. that it's, this is not CGI everybody. Nope. This was made in nope. 1980. Uh Those are real cop cars. They're just piling mm-hmm. them up like toy cars in the middle of Chicago.
2: <laughs> and Derek, do you want to bring up what the thing that you kept blowing your mind?
1: Oh, that, so the, the that scene before, just before the pile up, when it looks like they're driving a million miles an hour, I honestly thought they just uh, sped up the film, mm-hmm. but they were actually driving over a hundred miles an hour. Hundred eighteen yeah. miles per hour. Yeah. 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 Through that area. And Landis saw some of the early cuts and thought it it looked like it was fake. It just looked like it was sped up. So they they like, went back and, and hired some stunt pedestrians just mm-hmm. to make it look more real. I don't know if that – it oh. almost made it seem more fake because I'm like, there's no way this can be real with pedestrians, but yeah. So
0: here's the – okay, this is where – get ready. I'm about to flex on you guys a little bit here. Yes. Um, okay, so here's the here's the race car driver flex here. I immediately knew that that was real <laughs> because – Okay. Okay, the, please the, explain he, to us
2: how. Yeah.
0: Here's, here's how. So if the car was going slower – the suspension on a car that old would not be traveling that much, right? So you can see as the car is hitting those bumps in the road and they do a couple of the cutaways to the car zooming by, like it is like really bounding off the road big time. And it would only be doing that if they were traveling a pretty significant speed. Now, you're telling me they were doing over 100. I mean, I definitely believe that. I I figured it had to be at least 80 or so. And I knew that that's mm-hmm. a really tight area. I mean, it's pretty fast to be going through. Like, it basically mm-hmm. is like a car width wide on either yeah. side, like under that bridge. So I had a feeling it was pretty fast. That that's that's moving pretty good in a car that probably couldn't stop at all.
1: Would uh would your answer change if you knew that this car had cop shocks? <laughs> oh. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, you know what it would what it would tell me is that you're probably just getting your teeth knocked out even more inside the car.
2: Well, I know that the city of Chicago gave them permission to do that run twice. They said you get two chances, mm. and then oh that's wow, it. okay. So, so that's uh, kind of the the context around that. But now I'm so glad that you brought up your knowledge of this, because I think this is the perfect like segue to all. Okay. So when you're watching this, well, first of all, okay, let me rewind because you saw this for the first time when you were in high school, did you already have ideas that you, this is the career that you wanted to go into uh, car racing?
0: So I really wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I wanted oh, to get into okay. journalism around racing. Like I had been racing oh, okay. in high school. Uh, it was more of like a hobby. I didn't really think it was going to turn into anything as serious as what I'm doing now. Uh, it was pretty unrealistic at the time, um, but I wanted to get into covering motorsports. And so I had been around racing and and uh, maybe in a way, that's why like, I fell in love with car movies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so like Days of Thunder is like my all-time mm-hmm. movie. Obviously, that's like the Tom Cruise movie with, with, uh, with mm-hmm. NASCAR in it. Uh, but really, just like we start talking about the 80s movies with cars in them. Like, I immediately think of like iconic car movies like Ferris Bueller. That's like a mm, car yeah. movie. Like, a mm-hmm. car is a central to the plot of that movie. You mm-hmm. think about Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. A car is like central to the plot of the movie. And with the Blues Brothers, they introduce the Bluesmobile by literally calling it the Bluesmobile. They go, Yeah, this is the new Bluesmobile. He says it in there yes. with like yeah. cigarette cartons up on the dash, sunglasses. You know, like the whole thing, and maybe in a way, like I guess in the background of this, Anna, maybe that's why, I like I like it so much. Is it maybe it's just mm-hmm. deep down, it's a car movie. Like when the car falls <laughs> apart in front of the courthouse. Yeah, that's yeah. I had to I had to pause the movie from laughing so hard at that. Whoever came up with that as a as, as a scene is terrific because this car gets the absolute hell beaten out of it. For two hours? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we also need to just discuss the length of this movie. It is a long movie.
2: It is long. For, it's a, it's for a long comedy, movie for being yeah. short on plot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is a long movie. And that's like, yeah, it goes hand in hand with the whole, you know, all these different musical interludes to it, it. I enjoy watching them. I mean, it's a long movie. I think... There does come a point, maybe two thirds through where I'm like, OK, like we're getting to the end. Right. And then I kind of sometimes forget that there's like a couple more bits that they need to it, get through.
1: It drags on a bit. But that I, I really love the the show at the palace where you get to see. Oh, love it. You, don't, you don't really know, like, how good are are these two going to mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. like John right. Candy? Like, I haven't even seen these guys. Uh, I want to see these guys. Yeah. right. Uh, so right. That kind of brings me. It brings me back into it. And I'm so glad that you brought up the car falling apart and Elwood with his somber reaction because
2: such La- a great reaction.
1: Landis really wanted that stunt. He really wanted that effect. And they put so much money and time into it. They had a really surprisingly difficult time getting that car to break apart just the way they wanted it. Like the right. on it said this is a really expensive stunt, but it, I think it paid off. I thought it was great. Oh yeah. yeah. The,
0: the timing on that. Absolutely hilarious, and also a little emotionally resonant, right? Like Elwood turns yes! Yeah. but
2: <laughs> yes! he's
0: like really sad. Yeah. I mean, that that car has been through a lot with him.
2: I totally agree with you. I mean, I felt for him in that moment. He does. He they both do a great job. I mean, you get that one moment where Belushi takes off his glasses you know in his moment with Fisher and and that to me also really pays off because now you get to see that like iconic eyebrow raise that probably at that point he's already kind of known for um, does it a couple times in Animal House and so I love that moment as well and then you know both payoffs to those emotional moments for both of them you know he kisses Fisher and then he's like let's go and drops her (laughs) like (laughs) that's Uh, A certain kind of
1: throws her down. Yeah,
2: that's a I think a really effective. So it's like
1: every
0: line in the world leading up to that. He said (laughs) he was like, "I ran out of gas. We had a flat tire. Like, yeah, the tux didn't come back from the cleaners. Like, uh, somebody stole the car. (laughs) There was an earthquake.
2: It's such. I mean, for both of those scenes, like, I mean, that's something that I guess the film does really well. Is that. It's really good at build up and pay off. Yeah. For the comedic bits. So, yes. you know, to your point with what you just said, great build up with between him and Fisher and then the payoff. They kiss, he drops her, let's go. And then same with the car, you know, like you said this car is getting getting like getting beat up for 2 hours straight and then finally just breaks down and then seeing Elwood's reaction to that it's a little bit more of a somber moment, but it's also really funny. And it's, so it's another really great payoff to what's been building up over like the course of the entire film. So I, I, I just, I really appreciate that as, as like kind of crazy of a movie as it is, that seems to have like kind of no sense of direction. So
1: there was actually, I think Aykroyd had actually written a scene where he parks the car, he parks the Bluesmobile. mobile like near these power transformers or something. And they're hit by, there's some kind of scene that's supposed to let us all know that this uh, car has been touched by God. Mm, And this was like, no, it's it's just a magic car. Let's just move on. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) We, we don't need to emphasize this anymore.
1: (laughs) No,
2: as you're watching it now with kind of this, like, you know, lifetime of knowledge and expertise in what you do. Do you think you watch the movie differently? Like especially during all the different like car chases and that sort of thing. Like when you're watching it, like say when they're going through the mall, are you thinking about it as a fan? Are you thinking about it as somebody who actually like, you know, cars? Cars are your career, and racing is your career. So like, are you, how do you view those t- particular scenes?
0: Oh no, this is high comedy. That's all this is. <laughs> okay, just, okay. This is this is the you know uh, this is the the caramel corn. Of, of racing right here. It's just like, it's hard to compare this to, to anything car related because it's just so over the top. Everything they did. Okay. And, and I guess more than anything, Anna, I'm sitting here looking at it going, oh my God, how much did all this cost? Which I had never really like mm-hmm. looked up what the budget was for the stunts on this movie. Again, like I said something at the beginning of this podcast. I don't think another movie like this is ever going to be made. And I, I think it's like a one-of-one one movie where it's an SNL skit with a couple of movie stars in it. I mean, they were movie stars. All yes. of these yeah, musicians. Sure. Absolutely. You have great acting, but also horrible acting. You have mm-hmm. John Landis, so a, a, a great director. And it's an action movie musical that goes for like comedy. two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah comedy. You've that goes for two and a half the- hours.
1: You've also described cats,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> which
0: was not yeah, as successful. <laughs> Maybe it needed it needed more car crashes. Needed more c- car cats. crashes.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, at the time, and you—I mean, this is probably something you were familiar with at the at the time. It held the record for the most car, Like it was 103. Yes cars, oh, for three, rec, three uh, cars. during filming yeah <laughs> so the matrix reloaded oh, holds on. the current record so and then there was Land. a movie between those two that yeah but um but that that is actually something that okay so you were t- i loved listening to you talking about like car movies and the role that these uh instruments can play in these films so when you think about something like the blues brothers or maybe back to the future or Ferris as compared to something in more recent years, like for instance, the fast and the furious, um, do you get a certain kind of like, like, is it different? Cause you know that there's like CGI going on and, and there's all these like kind of artificial, I know crazy artificial, uh, you know, interferences with like what they're doing versus what happened back in 1980 when like, that was all just practical. Like yeah, those so things you're, were like really happening.
0: So you're telling me Vin Diesel didn't swerve a car <laughs> across a bridge, jump off of it and catch his, uh, yeah, his girlfriend midair before smashing into another car or they didn't jump a tank or they didn't I know, like
2: controversial take jump, <laughs> I jump mean, a car I know. over
0: a submarine on ice or uh, whatever the heck they've done. Uh yeah so whatever we we could we could spend an entire 2 hours talking about the Fast & Furious. It's it's gone so far off the rails at this point. Uh and I love it. And I love every minute of it. I will watch every one of them. I will be the first one to show up to the theater when it's back in there. It's just so over the top. I feel like at this point they're basically getting like a 17-year-old to write the scripts for the uh yeah. for, the, for the plot. Uh but yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, because you're right, can a car play as much of a central role in something like, you know, now compared to something like in, in the 80s, maybe like a Night Rider or something, which is basically mm-hmm. like an entire mm-hmm. show just built around a car, right? I don't know. I, I don't know because I don't feel like cars as a whole – here's controversial take here by the NASCAR driver – I don't know if cars as a whole hold the same level of, like, love – in Mm -hmm. modern society now. And and I've had my friends tell me this, that like a lot of people see a car the same way they see like a dishwasher, right? Like that's just Mm -hmm. an appliance and it gets me from place to place. And you've seen all Mm -hmm. of the character and a lot of the uniqueness of brands of cars kind of be stripped away, right? Like what's the Mm -hmm. most popular car in America now? It's like a sedan and it Mm -hmm. doesn't really have a lot going on. It's like, taupe and like white and off gray and you know these colors that like aren't really eye-catching colors and so what is the role of a car in society today i mean we talk about like probably if i said 25 years in the future all cars are going to be self-driving would that sound like the craziest thing in the world
1: no
2: there's right. all about it <laughs> i
1: so on, right. on one hand <laughs> on one hand i i grew up you know, at a time when it was just kind of taken for granted that I learned how to drive on a stick shift. And I felt like that gave me a much different connection to driving than when I just get in hit the gas and and I don't have to worry about any of the stuff that's going on in the car. Um, So on one hand, I kind of miss that. But on the other hand, driving in Los Angeles, if I just get in a car and it does literally everything for me, I'm okay with that too. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. As far as there, there's like a loss of that um, love affair that America mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. with, with right. cars, with automobiles. It's not. It's definitely not the same that it used to be.
2: I think. Well, that's we so think about like American. What you
1: brought up.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say about like American graffiti. Like we talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, like the first movie that uh, was George Lucas made was mm-hmm. basically a, a love letter to car culture and like hot rod culture. Right. So, you know, we, we talk about like where we were compared to where we are now. I don't know. And I think we probably have probably crossed the Rubicon as far as that goes.
2: Mm-hmm. It, that is so interesting. It's not really something that I had thought about before in terms of, especially like cinema or television. And you're right. I mean, I'm thinking uh, American Graffiti is a great example. I'm thinking a Bullet. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's another yeah. great car movie. Baby, baby
0: driver, baby driver was a car chase movie that was made here recently. But, but really, it wasn't revolved around a car. And Edgar Wright Mm could have probably let that happen if he really wanted to, right? Like if he really Mm -hmm. wanted baby to have like one specific car, he could have done that, and that probably would have still worked in the movie. But he didn't. Yeah, and maybe that says something, right? That it's just a car is just a tool. And when mm-hmm. we're done with this car, we'll get another car. And that's fine. It, it doesn't maybe hold the same symbolic place.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is, now that I'm thinking about it, it is a huge part of like 80s films. I mean, between, like like you said, as soon as you say Bluesmobile, we all know what you're talking about. Yeah. If you say the word DeLorean, yeah. everybody goes yeah. to Back oh, to the yeah. Future. So
1: this isn't, uh, this isn't cinema. But I will say there is at least one very long-running television series that had a car. That was a very important vehicle, and that's the um, Impala from Supernatural.
2: Oh yes, are you at all? I know we're we're it's okay. We're way off the rails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. We're going we're, we're, we're going doing into like conversation. Yeah, but. <laughs> we're, we're going into
0: super nerd corner here on the Supernatural <laughs> level here, but that's okay. That's all right.
2: Is that do you do you know what Derek's talking about? The Impala. I, I know the
0: from- show. I know the show. Yeah, yeah. I do not know what you guys are talking about with the Impala, though. No.
2: But that's, I think Derek's right that that might be the one holdout as far as like anything that I'm familiar with
1: Yeah. in where, terms
2: of like where the car actually is a character into unto itself.
1: Yeah. That's the most current thing that I can think of. It's yeah. Most, and, and that's an old car. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. again, it's like going back to, that's that's why it's like its own character almost is because it was like handed out from his dad to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, just like the Bluesmobile. <laughs>
2: Well that gosh, that was fascinating. I mean, again, that's why like we just love when we bring people on the show who have a particular love for a film because they always bring to our attention just things that I had never thought about. Yeah. Um, so I no, here's where I'm curious. In terms of like, you know, you mentioned at the top of our conversation, you know, you're from Mississippi and you already had this like affinity for uh a lot of the music that was part of the film. As somebody who... Because I here's where I come from. I'm actually from the Chicago area. Like, grew up there. And so I have a particular way of looking at the film. It's very nostalgic for me in terms of, like, seeing all these different locations. Um, Aykroyd is amazing. He kind of <laughs> plays up the Chicago accent a touch too much, but it's it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, well, so, it's like... good on
1: regular guests.
2: Yeah, guests. Um, so I love all those different things about it. As somebody who is outside of like that mindset that I would personally have, like how did you feel about the way that it portrayed kind of, cause I think of this film actually very similarly to how I think of Ferris Bueller's day off yeah. in terms of it be ki- being kind of a love letter and of some sorts to the city um, and really showing it off. So is that something that connected for you or is, did that not play as much of a role in why you love this movie?
0: Yeah, I think, for me, uh, if I had to say if it was a love letter to anything, it would be to the music, right? To the blues music yeah, and, and the kind of the stars of the of the movie. Because you're right, even in the moment in 1980, they were probably fading away from stardom, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. pop culture was kind of fading away from this type of music. And, and in a way, this is kind of symbolic of like the last gasp of having all these people together, still super relevant. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it now, it's almost like a time capsule for that type of music, which I I grew up on oldies. That is what my mom raised me on. (laughs) So uh, for me, I already knew a lot of this music and knew a lot of the people in the movie. And so that's why when it was kind of revealed to me in whatever, 2003, uh, you know, it kind of hit a little harder for me because I already knew the music.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And because you brought this, like we're talking about music right now, and you brought up earlier giving due diligence to all of the gentlemen who played the band members and being actual musicians. I mean, as much as like, you know, we're kind of teasing a little bit that Matt Murphy is not much of an actor. I mean, I think that they absolutely made the right choice. And actually, most of them like Mr. Fabulous. They were like he did pretty good as far as acting chops, you know. And so some of them are 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 just fine. Um, They were
1: all perfect. This movie is perfect. (laughs) Yes, this (laughs) movie is terrific.
2: It's it's so good, and I I love that they do that. I mean, last night again when Derek and I were watching it, and you know, we're at the tail end of the movie now and Jake and Elwood are trying to figure out how they get out of that space to to get away from the cops. And they just have the rest of the band playing. Like, well, they actually are real, like, maybe not a band as like a cohesive band, but they are real musicians. So they're, you know, the crowd's getting the better part of it. Although, Jake and how Elwood- How dare you? I know. They're, no, they're fantastic. <laughs> I mean, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love was the last song we played at our wedding. So, like, we- I, I love them they're amazing um but I I really love watching those musicians perform like I just thought that you know I don't know how you would fake it you know I don't know how you would I mean well I it probably led to too, the believability
0: know, but... of like that scene right where basically mm-hmm. the entire movie is building to that scene uh, at the end where they're actually performing on stage. Which is why, for me, like I guess I've I've, I've seen the movie so many times now. I, I'm laughing harder at at stranger parts of the movie, but like mm-hmm. the entire buildup when Cab Calloway is like announcing them coming out <laughs> for, for the big <laughs> performance, the crowd is completely silent and everybody is just sitting there <laughs> watching, no anticipation at all. And he's like fresh from their tour of, you know. Nova Scotia, Scandinavia, Scandinavia, and the the subcontinent, (laughs) you know, like, like I just, and then they come out there and he does like the flip and lands and sticks the landing and nobody claps at all. They're not impressed. And then he just just counts in the band immediately. Oh, it's just terrific. So, I mean, I find myself laughing harder at those type of moments. And you're right. Like maybe something, uh, when it comes to the casting of this, I, I got a feeling that was an early decision that they made of like, no, we have to have these people in here. Like, we actually mm-hmm. have to have musicians. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff with a band playing. And like, you know, Aykroyd and, and Belushi can be up there in the front of this, but we actually need a band. Mm-hmm. We, we can't fake mm-hmm. the band.
2: No, absolutely agree, and I mean, and it shows up in so many other instances too, where they're really—I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say carrying the scene, but they certainly pull help the scene get pulled off. Like when they, you know, do their gig as the good old boys, and oh, and they're the good old like
0: Blues Brothers, Brothers boys. boys band. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> terrific. And,
0: you know, and, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, I was going to say that. That just makes me think of like so many lines in this movie, Anna. That that I use still in just casual conversation, like from that, where he's like, we got both kinds of music, you know, we got country and Western. <laughs> and here,
2: <laughs> such a good line. It's, it's,
0: it's incredible. So and and there's so many of them at, where it's like, just in that one little area of the movie, which if I cut that out as like an eight minute stretch, that's just hilarious in and of itself. Mm-hmm. That entire stretch of the movie from the moment they get there. Him lying to the guys, lying to the bartender guy, uh, you know, her with the comment about country and Western, they go in there, they start playing Rawhide. Like that's how mm-hmm. they get, the, that's how they get the Which crowd. they do really side. well.
2: I they, can't say that I was <laughs> ever a, a fan of Rawhide, but I love that <laughs> they, performance of Rawhide.
0: <laughs> they, they play Stand By Your Man. <laughs> and
2: yeah.
0: And, uh, and the guys are crying into the beers. <laughs> and and uh, they're still throwing so stuff sad. up at the stage, crashing the beer bottles into the into the mesh i mean it's that's what i found so enjoyable about
2: that whether they are livid or they are supremely happy it results in the same actions which is them throwing their bottles at at them i thought that that was just a really kind of small thing that they put into the scene that like no matter what you're going to get bottles thrown at you and i love that
1: i like that it goes right from that into another car chase scene with another ridiculous stunt where the car's
2: Yes, flip over great, great seemingly stunt. for no
0: reason,
1: yeah yes,
2: yeah, yes, but they, but really the like, of it too,
0: yeah, but the you know the blues that whatever, the good old boys showing up, you know, after the the band's already gone and and them having to basically bail because they drank more beer than they actually made money, which is just <laughs> hilarious, which is just hilarious, I've literally heard bands reference this to me. Being like, basically, we're going to drink more in beer than we're going to get paid. Like, so they're literally referencing the Blues Brothers.
2: <laughs> like, so that's a real thing.
0: Still, it's yeah, it's stuck around. Yeah. You wow. know, it's so like if you think about like the best quotes from this movie because I've I've got it pulled up right here, and there are so many lines from a movie, again written off an SNL skit in in nineteen eighty, that are still being used. We're talking thirty something years later. So Illinois Nazis you know, hating Illinois Nazis. Guys. Just hate terrific. Uh, Greed. There's a, there's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark out and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Just perfect. So good. Just perfect. We're on a mission from God. Incredible. Uh, both kinds, country and Western. Perfect. Are you police? No, ma'am. We're musicians.
2: Yeah. That was one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just, just, just incredible! No, ma'am. Just incredible stuff.
2: It no, I totally agree with you. I mean, so many great lines, which it makes me wonder, especially given. I mean, we talked about like what maybe the initial uh, look of that script was and how crazy that was, and then Landis having to come in. But I have to imagine that they're also given the fact that we're talking about two individuals, and actually John Candy included. And I definitely want to get to John Candy as yeah. well you know, we have three individuals who all came up through improv and, and I'm curious, like how many of those lines are just things that they kind of came up on the fly with instead of actually being part of the the scripted material. Um, you know, it's, but whatever, what, however, those lines came to be so many amazing lines. And that's, that's like, part of why we love talking about these types of films and especially from this era, because there's just something when somebody quotes a line and you know exactly what that quote is from just like the nostalgia that kind of rushes over you and the happiness, like, yeah, we get each other. I know what you're talking about. Like, I just love those moments and this film has so many of them.
0: It's a deep cut movie, right? Uh, Because Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. the people that stand for this movie, it, it is a love uh, of this movie and, and I'm clearly one of those and so I was curious like what the, okay so this is me talking about it in like a post 2000 context where this was already an older movie when I saw it and still mm-hmm. watching it now it is crazy to think this movie is 40 years old as we're sitting here talking yeah, about it, it now but but I wanted to think like okay what did people say about it in the moment right? And so I looked it up. So Siskel and Ebert, here's Gene Siskel, his review. He gave it four out of four stars. Yeah. Wow. He
2: gave gave
0: it four out of four stars.
2: I was really nervous that you were going to say something (laughs) awful about
0: (laughs) that. No, I was was actually more flabbergasted that it was so positively received. (laughs) Because I thought it would be kind of a cult Uh, hit. And he said, The Blues Brothers is the year's best film to date. One of the all-time great comedies, the best movie ever made in Chicago, all are true, and boy, is that ever a surprise!
1: Yeah,
2: Gene Siskel. I, I, yeah, I like that acknowledgement that he's as surprised as anyone else that he loves this movie as much as he did.
1: It's definitely a much, much better movie than it ever deserves to be. Based off, if if you just look at like, yes, it's based off of an SL and. I, SNL skit and not even really like some of the other movies that transferred over were kind of like longer running skits where mm-hmm. sure it makes sense that they, this, this wasn't really like that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it really is like this lightning in a bottle kind of uh, movie.
2: I agree. And I mean, I think that between the Siskel review and what we have all been talking about up to this point is that, yeah, I mean, like, there's so many things that, like, from a critical eye, you can kind of tear apart, lack of plot, you know, like we've all talked about, you know, it going maybe a little bit longer than it really needs to, things like that. But, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, despite, despite all those things that you might look at with, like, in a cerebral way, it's just a great movie. It's just a fun movie. You can't help but yeah. kind of be taken away by it. So I really appreciate that Cisco recognized it for that because i think that that's something that it's very easy for somebody who considers themselves a critic i mean there could be a lot of things that as a critic you would you would tear apart yeah and so i really appreciate that he understood what this film was supposed to be yeah
0: well it's hilarious to me to think about gene like gene siskel sitting in like a quiet room watching the blues brothers and here's here's Belushi and Aykroyd like sitting at that fancy restaurant, and like you know just stuffing the rolls in their mouth, and and Belushi like leaned over to the man being like, "How much will your women?" And like Gene Siskel sitting there being like, "This is the best movie of the year. <laughs> this this is cinema. This is four out of four stars.
1: That's amazing." I bet he watched it and had a real hankering for four fried chickens and a Coke afterwards.
0: <laughs> four fried chickens and a Coke. I forgot about that line. That should have been in the lines. That's incredible.
2: I mean, I I love that. I And, you know, that makes me so happy that obviously it has a tremendous following, but that it was recognized. Because, like, here's the thing. It's like not – it, film in itself is just so subjective, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't really compare something like the Bru- Blues Brothers to, uh, you know, I don't know, like... The Godfather. The Godfather, Eng- the, Godfather or the English <laughs> right. Asian, you know, something like that. And, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be. It can be appreciated for exactly what it is. Yeah. And in particular, that's why, you know, I... I imagine that like probably your interest in film is like has a wide scope. I tend to lean towards comedies because I appreciate what they're able to accomplish which is, you know, getting people to kind of forget about whatever is going on in their lives and just like have a laugh and have fun. And I think that that's a lot harder than people give comedies credit for.
1: There are excellent. I mean, The Godfather obviously is an excellent movie that we will watch again and again. Sure. But when I watch a movie like The Blues Brothers, I just feel good. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's that nostalgia factor. It's just a fun movie. But that's the power of like a really great comedy is that you can watch it all the time. Whenever you watch it, you just feel a little bit better about your day. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In, in a way, this was the most SNL movie ever made and the least SNL movie yeah. ever yeah. made. Fr- fr- from a budget standpoint and a like over the top car crashes budget, like production scale, probably the furthest thing that you would think of from an SNL movie. And then in a way, it's the most SNL movie because it's basically just a composite of a bunch of sketches. Like each yeah. one of these scenes is like a sketch, which is like, Hey, we got Ray Charles in here for a sketch. Hey, we've got, you know, Aretha Franklin in here for a sketch. Hey, we've got the nun and Cab Calloway in here for a sketch. And so it's just these, you know, like the good old boys thing, that whole thing at that part, that's just a scene. It's a sketch basically. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. playing these same characters, And maybe in a way, that's what makes it so great. Is it's like you're watching all of these sketches back to back to back with two guys playing two of your favorite characters, and they're they're taking themselves so seriously and yet not seriously at all, all at the same time.
2: Really well said, Tommy Joe. This has been just
1: thank you so much. A,
2: to- a tremendous, yeah. <laughs> tremendous yeah. Look, we're- time to. Go
1: ahead. We're we're talking
0: about a movie that was selected. Just to end on this, I know we're about to wrap things up. This is me doing my Wikipedia research real quick, and I had to (laughs) double-check this because it sounded so crazy. But we're talking about a movie that's based off an SNL skit, and this past year, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So yes, we're talking about a movie that is culturally significant to the point that it is actually going to be preserved for future generations in the Library of Congress. And it's based off a couple of guys doing cocaine in suits <laughs> with sunglasses
1: on, <laughs> and dancing yeah, around in Chicago. Be, uh, I believe this has been officially endorsed by the Pope as well. It's it just just
2: incredible oh because of the whole catholic angle got it i was at first i was like how is this connected (laughs) although i do uh remember when they first walk into uh sister mary stigmata's office yeah there is a oh no 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 actually it's not her office oh wow okay so it's another it's when they go talk to um is it what's her name it's not mrs toronto mrs tarantino
1: T- T- torrentino torrentino i just it Tor- toronto
2: <laughs> um it's on her <laughs> wall actually that there's a picture of pope john paul ii perfect and i remember thinking yeah. wow okay that's an interesting little thing there to have into it but well tommy joe thank you so much for being part of the show you have been just the most tremendous guest we've loved talking to you uh you know Always welcome. If you have any other 80s movies that you happen to love, you let us know. We'd love to have you back on. Um, and in the meantime, just curious if you want to share with our listeners any events that you might have in com- might have coming up soon. We'd love to hear about it.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me on. And the problem here is that I love too many movies, uh, but this one was one uh, <laughs> very, very near and dear to my heart. So thank you for letting me uh, kind of chat about it for the for the last hour and a half. But uh, we've got Talladega coming up this weekend with the race team. So for any of you guys that might be casual NASCAR fans or, or maybe not fans of NASCAR at all, uh, one of our biggest races of the year is at Talladega. So I know a lot of people know Talladega Nights. Uh, And Mm -hmm. the bow of Ricky Bobby, well, we're running that track next weekend uh, with NASCAR. We'll be down there. So uh, I guess it'll be this weekend as the pod airs. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. be racing on Saturday afternoon. So you can check us out. Number 44 car in the Xfinity Series on Saturday.
2: That's fantastic. We wish you all the best with your race and the rest of your season. And thank you again for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you guys.
2: All right. What a fun conversation. Wasn't that just so great? That was... was
1: amazing. Thank you so much, Tommy Joe, for taking the time to talk about such a great movie with us. It was just an incredible time.
2: It really was. Yeah. He was just so fun and yeah, had a had an awesome time with him. All right. I mean, this this is just a silly, silly question to ask.
1: <laughs> you must ask it. So... I must ask it yeah. though.
2: Derek, would you watch this film again?
1: Yeah, I'll watch this movie. I could yeah. I will watch it again, for sure.
2: I know you will. Yeah. Like, I mean, in the very- Enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. I mean, it is, I this is fun. I mean, this is fun for me because, you know, very early into our first season, we covered one of my tops, The Goonies. Yeah, And so I had a lot of affection and emotion around that. And it's awesome that we could do that for you.
1: To give you a sense of how long this has been a favorite movie of mine- It was many years ago, decades ago, when I was at a party in the desert with friends in Arizona. Oh
2: boy, that just sounds... (laughs) It sounds
1: sounds sketchy. But uh, someone asked the question about favorite movies, and this was a crowd that was, you know, it was a different time with all the, uh, you know, your grunge and punk and and such. So Mm -hmm. when my answer was the Blues Brothers, it was met with just laughter and mockery. And you know what? I stand by that answer then. I stand by it now.
2: And, you know, where are those people now? Probably nowhere because they don't like a great movie. Maybe
1: still in the desert. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a a great film. Um, For me, I think it has taken on greater significance just because it's something that I know you really love. And it's something that I've always been familiar with, you know, having grown up in the Chicago area. Like, yeah. it, it is a really popular movie. And um, my dad loved that movie. And it is very nostalgic for me, watching it. Yeah. Uh, again, hearing that, like, slightly over-the-top Chicago accent that Aykroyd puts on <laughs> uh, no one else, fun. No
1: one else really has that heavy of an accent. And they're all also in Chicago.
2: I I know one person. Okay. Not, I mean, not even my dad had that strong of an oh, accent, but I, I know I know one individual okay. who who has something very akin to that, but uh, otherwise, you know, but it's fun, I get it. I don't I don't take it as an offense by I mean, any means. It
1: wasn't as far as like the super fans get on an S- SNL.
2: Yes. But it was that like that one's fun too. I don't yeah. I don't get a like some people I don't know. That's an interesting question. Like if people get like offended by others who try to mimic their accent i i don't i think it's fun you know it's all just for fun so okay (laughs) listener call to action i know what mine's gonna be okay i mean i'm i'm doubling down on what i was asking earlier i want people to tell me if they know the story behind the gary houston photo in imdb (laughs) (laughs) like that's that's my call to action you know what what happened why that's there let me know
1: that that's a good one um Yeah, I can't, I can't top that because when I saw that picture, it, it, uh, it kind of blew me away.
2: Right? Yeah. I need to know the story behind that, but
1: yeah, I, I so my call to action though will be if you please let me know if you have successfully jammed your car in reverse and gotten it to perform a backflip. And if no one responds to this call to action, I'm just going to assume no one's done it.
2: So to get in touch with us, you can do so through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's the same handle for all three at 80s Montage Pod and 80s is 80s. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm so excited for this next one because this is now we're going back to like one of my top films.
1: I was so hyped up for the Blues Brothers that I honestly don't even know what it is.
2: This one goes to 11.
1: Oh, this is Spinal Tap? Yes. Okay.
2: <laughs> I am so excited. I I do remember watching this. You do
1: love this movie. At
2: such a young age and just finding <laughs> it absolutely hysterical. Love the humor. Love everything about it, honestly. So I am so stoked to cover this one. And that will be coming up in two weeks' time. So awesome. thank you for joining us. And uh, we will see you then. All right.